0: Well, if you would, turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter uh, 20. John, chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 18 uh, this morning. You could say that uh, the Gospel of John spends a lot of time uh, describing for the reader, this is what it looks like to relate to God. This is what it looks like to know him. And part of the, the, the way we see that. Uh, comes, to across, comes to us, especially in the beginning of the gospel. Uh, most of the gospels, at least Matthew and Luke, they start with a genealogy, or they start with, you know, this is Jesus' family tree. This is where he comes from. This is where he's connected to in history. But John doesn't start like that. Uh, he starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, and it dwelled among us. It pitched its tent among us. Christ came to live among us. It's how he chooses to relate to us. Not far off, high up, and lifted up in the distance, but he comes close. He draws near to us. Now, all the Gospels end with the same story. They all end with talking about resurrection and proving that, so to speak, to us. And you would think how important that is if you're... Uh, seeking to articulate and share the, the biography, if you will, of a, of a man who talked about his power and his plan, that in three days he was going to be alive again, in three days he was going to rise again, certainly you would want to talk about that. You'd want to emphasize that. You would want to uh, describe it in a way that people believe and that people know. And the testimony that we see here that the Gospel of John gives us is with a woman named Mary. And that's who I want us to think about uh, this Easter morning. So as you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 1 through uh, 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one jesus loved and said they have taken the lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him so peter and the other disciple started for the tomb both were running but the other disciple outran peter and reached the tomb first he bent over and looked in at the stripes of linen strips of linen lying there but did not go in then simon peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, read this story of Mary, and uh, we're familiar with the storyline that you came and you made yourself known uh, to your people, but we pray that you would, would come and make yourself known to us. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Please be seated. In his book, Recapturing the Wonder, Mike Cosper retells the story of a fairy tale story, and the fairy tale story is called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And the fairy tale is about magic. It's about magic and its absence in 19th century or 18th century uh, England told you it was a fairy tale okay now magic is is believed in but it's not really there it's believed in the sense of it's like folklore it's like they believed in it like they believed in the stories of king Arthur. and in this town there are these uh, men who identify themselves as magicians now if you were hearing this story these men were pointed out to you as you walked in town and somebody said these are magicians and you asked well what What have they done? What spells have they practiced? And they would say, well, they haven't really done anything. They just call themselves magicians. They like to talk about magic. They like to to debate the intricacies of magic and its history. And they talk about magicians of old and what they did. And they spend time together at least once a month. And they'll pull out these big, dull, old, books and they would read them to each other and talk about magic all the time and share the theories and discuss and debate the ins and outs. They call themselves magicians. And then one day a man named Mr. Norrell arrives into town and he goes to uh, the Yorkshire Cathedral and he casts this spell. He does magic and he makes all the statues there come to life. And the statues begin to sing and to talk and to laugh and they begin to to share all the stories of the people that they embody as statues. And the magicians hear this and they come and they see and they witness it. And in that moment, their lives are changed. Because in that moment, they realize the world that they have been living in is not what they thought it was. And in that moment, in that experience, everything was turned upside down for them. Mary is, is one of these people in the Gospels. We see her life turned upside down because she has seen somebody come to life. She's seen Jesus, the one that she's been so devoted to, come to life, and her life is forever changed, seemingly in, in one moment. And it's her life, her witness, her testimony, so to speak, that I want us to think about this morning. What does it teach us about Faith. What does it teach? It's about resurrection faith. And all I want to do is simply walk through this passage, highlight some things, and see what it means for us as believers today. First thing about who Mary Magdalene is. Uh, We're introduced to her in Luke chapter 8, and she has been living a miserable life. She's been a victim. She has these unclean spirits that are cast out of her by Jesus She's been humiliated, she's been dehumanized, she's been a victim, and then she experiences Christ, experiences His grace, experiences His power in her life, and she is forever changed in one moment. And as you would expect, she spends her days and weeks following Jesus around, being devoted to Him, worshiping Him just living and basking in everything that he says and all that he does because of how she's been rescued and how she's been redeemed. And then she arrives at this tomb. It's the third day, seemingly going to, to pay her respects and to follow up on what's, what's happened. And she looks inside. She's surprised, first of all, that she can look inside. And she sees that it's empty. And she, it seems like immediately she, she gets up and she runs back and she grabs Peter and John and tells them what she saw. She says to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now think about that. That's her explanation. That's her res- response. Somebody's stolen the body. It's gone. They've removed it. I, I can't find it. She's panicking. She's crying. She's having all these experiences that she's having, this empty tomb, And her explanation is that somebody stole the body. And you see her doubt. You see her despair in this moment. As I said a moment ago, she has been following Jesus around. And she knows his teaching. She knows his miracles. She's experienced those miracles in her own life. And she's heard that that soft refrain in Jesus' ministry. On the third day, I'll rise again. On the third day, I'll rise again. And you would think, as she's at that empty tomb, she would be standing there thinking to herself, well, it's the third day. Maybe, I wonder. And the tomb is empty, so maybe, maybe he actually did it. But that's not what we see. Her response is somebody has stolen the body. Now, move down a little bit to verses uh, 10 and 11, and we see a little bit of what begins to change her mind. Uh, She finds, uh, we see Mary, she's weeping outside this tomb. She's alone. She's in her grief. She's in her sorrow. The other two, Peter and John, they've come and they've gone. They've just left her there, just sitting there all alone, isolated by herself. And she peeks inside the tomb again, and she sees the angel standing there, one at the head, one at the foot, this pallet where Jesus has been laying. And she hears this being said to her, Why are you crying? Mary, why are you crying? Now think about that question for a moment. You can reason that seems kind of cold and insensitive and indifferent. To ask somebody by a tomb who is crying, why are you crying? You would want to turn to them and say, why do you think I'm crying? Somebody I love is gone. I'm sad. I'm mourning. I'm full of grief in despair. Things are not good for me. I, I miss this person because I love them. So it seems like a foolish question to ask, why are you crying to somebody in a graveyard or in a cemetery? But that's not the intention of these angels. That's not where they're going. Now, we don't know a lot about angels, kind of mysterious. The Bible doesn't give us a, a real ton of information about them. But we do know the angels knew about Christ. They knew about his life. They knew about the plan. They knew that they saw him come to earth and to grow and to mature and to teach. And they saw him die. And they know the end of the story. They know the rest of the story. They know that he is gone. He's been resurrected. That of course he's not here. And so their question, why are you crying, is, is meant to point Mary towards hope. Why are you crying? The tomb is empty. As if to say what Jesus said he would do, he has done. He's done it for you. It's it's happened. They're trying to give her hope. They're trying to reach her. Now think about her response to the angels. Go to verse 13. You see her confession again. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Still wondering where the body is. Still not connecting the dots. And then Jesus comes on the scene in verse 14. He asks the same question. Why are you crying? And Mary doesn't recognize. She thinks it's the gardener. And she's about to, to go to him and, and say, well, Just tell me where the body is I'll, I'll, so I can find him, so I can take care of things, so I can look after him. Most of the time, it's hard for us as believers today to, put our, uh, to understand what biblical characters we see like Mary are going through, what they're experiencing it's hard to, to connect with them. Most of that is, is cultural. We just live in a different time, different space. But, but think about it like this. Today, there are people who don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in the supernatural. We live in a, a, a culture that is all about science, and it's all about technology, and it's all about proven facts, and what you can see, and what you can prove. And we hear this talk about resurrection and life and the miracle of an empty tomb and all that kind of stuff, and it doesn't seem real. It seems fictitious. It seems that that there's no way. That's impossible. That stuff doesn't happen. Now, ask yourself this question. What would it take for somebody who believes that there's no such thing as a supernatural as a miraculous to believe in an empty tomb? To believe that, that Christ rose again out of death. What would it take? It would have to be overwhelming evidence. It would have to be clear. It would have to be uh, sharp. It would have to be meaningful and weighty to shatter that worldview that somebody's been working with and living with for the longest time that there's no such thing as miraculous or the supernatural. And what I want to say to you is that same overwhelming evidence that would take somebody. To, to change their opinion today or change the worldview today is the same evidence that Mary needs in this moment. The tomb is empty, and her explanation is somebody has stolen the body. That's how she's reasoning, and that's how she's explaining it away. And she needs that overwhelming evidence to change her mind. What was that evidence? What was that overwhelming evidence that did it for Mary? The evidence was she actually saw Jesus She saw him standing before her. She talked to him. She heard him. She saw him alive standing in front of her. Go back to the passage. Go back to the text. And Jesus finally says to her, Mary. He just says, Mary. Some of you may remember Jesus' earlier teaching when he talks about, he says, I am the good shepherd. And in that passage, he says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep, I know them. And my sheep know my voice. And here is Mary. She recognizes that voice. She knows that tone. She's heard it before and now she's hearing it again. It's her Jesus. It's her Savior saying that to her. And in that moment, Mary turns and she becomes the first person to witness the risen Lord, the risen Christ. And in that moment, she moves from her despair and from her doubts and from her disappointments to joy, to faith, to life. Seeing that the impossible has been made possible. Now the takeaway I think at this point for us is that believing in the resurrection means believing the eyewitnesses' accounts. And to believe the eyewitness accounts means believing in a person. The person and work of Christ. To believe in the testimony of Christ doesn't mean that we believe in concepts. doesn't really mean we, we change our philosophy. It doesn't mean we, we change our sense of morality. It means we believe in a person. Christianity is not about an idea or a lifestyle. That's not the essence of Christianity. It's about knowing a person. It's about knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who's defeated sin and death for us. How do you think about God in your life? Who is God to you this morning? Who is Christ to you this morning? Is he a concept? Is he an idea? Or is he a person that's walked out of the tomb, defeated sin and death, not to prove how great and grand he is, but he defeated sin and death for you so that you wouldn't have to fist, face sin and death in its ultimate turnout. Go back to verse uh, 17. At this point, after hearing her name, Jesus is seeing her, and Mary apparently reaches out and, and starts grabbing him clinging to him and holding on to him because Jesus says to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You've got to ask yourself at this point, why would Jesus say that? I thought he was a loving guy, a nice guy, and he's for people and relationships, and why wouldn't he want somebody uh, doing that? Why is he just kind of pushing her away and pushing her uh, telling her to keep your distance, you know, back off. Why would he say that? Theologians, commentators will talk about it and they'll give various answers. But one thing to, to say uh, is this. He's saying to her, is Mary's, think about Mary's experience, okay? She's been following Jesus around, uh, devoted to him, with him all the time. Good Friday comes and he's gone and now he's back again here on the third day. And she's thinking that it's going to go back to the way it was before. And she doesn't want to lose him again. She doesn't want him to be gone again. And so she's grabbing him and wanting it to go back to the way it was. But Jesus says, I haven't ascended to the Father yet. And what's he saying? He's saying to her and he's saying to us that our relationship, Mary, is different now. It's a different relationship. I'm not walking the towns, uh, going and preaching and teaching and doing what I did before. But I'm going back to the Father to sit there, to be with Him. But I will be spiritually present with you. I will be there with you. That's what our relationship is going to look like. Now, it doesn't take much, take very long to read the Bible and see that to to have a relationship with Christ means understanding grace, understanding God's grace in our lives. Mary experienced and knew this grace. The unclean spirits, the, the life of just humiliating victimization that she Lived in. And then Jesus comes and changes her. And of course, we see her as devout, as following, and wanting more of this Christ, this love that He has shown her, wants more of it. But sometimes in the Bible, we see men and women who are exposed to Christ and they don't want His grace. They don't want more of Him. And usually, the people that don't want His grace are those that would say, You know, I've got my life together. It's in good shape. I'm happy with how things are going. I'm in control of things. I I don't need you. There's a story of the rich young ruler in in Luke chapter 18. And it's that story where this rich individual comes and he talks to Jesus about eternal life and how he can have inheritance, inherit that. And there's this back and forth and they get to the issue of the law. And this man basically raises his hand and says, Yeah, I've kept all the commandments. I've I've done it all. I'm good to go. What, What else do you have for me? What else is there? And Jesus says, come and follow me. And the rich young man says, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want your grace. I don't want to follow you. I heard somebody uh, say, express uh, God's grace like this. He says, come to Jesus proud, you go away sad. Come to Jesus convinced of your sadness, you go away with the pride of someone who is being loved back. Mary has walked away from Jesus with the pride of being loved back. She saw her need, and she saw what Christ has done for her. Now back to uh, John chapter 20, last point. Uh, The disciples are mentioned. There's been a lot of talk with Mary, but Jesus brings up the disciples with Mary. He says to her, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, and your Father, to my God, and your God. Now think about, when was the last time we saw the disciples? When was the last time we heard about them? They uh, were with Jesus on that night, and he was betrayed, and they ran. They abandoned him. They, They left him. And what does Jesus call them? He says, go to the disciples, and he calls them my brothers. He doesn't say, go back to those cowards. Don't, don't go back to, he doesn't say, go back to those wimps. Go back to those guys that abandoned me, that left me, because I've got some words for them. He says, no, go back to my brothers. And Mary is to be that one that goes back to tell them of what she has experienced. It's like Jesus is saying, go back and tell them the rest of the story. Go back and tell them what I have done, what I have accomplished and go back and tell my brothers that it's for them. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, it's hard to put ourselves in the foot, the feet, the shoes of uh, the disciples and characters we see uh, in the Bible. And for us, we think about the disciples, and we hear about how they respond to Jesus in certain situations, and we can be kind of critical. Like, how could you do that? How could you leave him? Don't you know who he is? Don't you know what he's going to do? Don't you remember what he said was going to happen? And we'd be kind of critical. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense uh, to us. Well, think about what happened to the disciples, okay? They've, been, they've met Jesus years ago, and he's called them out. He's, he casts his vision for this ministry and who he is and his purpose and how he came to fulfill, and he does all these miraculous things. He stops a storm. He heals a paralytic. He engages in this incredible, winsome teaching. He stands up to religious leaders to confront them. And then good Friday comes, and they see Judas betray him. And they see these soldiers haul their teacher, the man that they've been following and believing him, believing in. They haul him away and he's gone. He's nailed to a tree, nailed to a cross, and he's dead. He's gone. You can imagine what they're feeling, what they're thinking. They had these expectations and now there's this reality and there's this gap between it. And they're sitting there in disappointment and despair and confusion over what's happened. Now think about yourself. Imagine, you know, many of us here, they, we put our faith in Christ. We believe Him. We trust Him. We know His promises. Yes, there was an empty tomb. Yes, He, he rose again. Yes, He's coming back again full of glory. And in my home and my rest, my peace uh, is with him. But then there's how you actually live. Then there's your actual circumstances the bills, the difficulty in your marriage, the difficulty in raising children, the loneliness, the disappointment, the despair, uh, the the dreams that haven't come true in your life. And there's this gap. There's the reality of, of Christ and what you believe and what you say, but then there's your experiences. And there just seems to be disappointment and confusion on what's going on. And Jesus says to Mary, go back to my brothers. Go back and tell them the rest of the story. It's like he's saying to them, I know you're disappointed. I know this wasn't what you expected. But I'm here. I'm real. I've defeated death. I've been risen back from the dead. When I said to you on the third day I will rise again, it really happened. It really came true. I know you're frustrated, I know you're confused, but I want you to know that I'm here, that you can trust me, that I fulfilled everything I said I would do, and that's the same invitation he holds out to you and me. There may be a gap in your life where it's like on the one hand, yes, I believe in my head that Christ is real, that it's true, but then there's my experiences There's my disappointment. There's my frustration. There's my broken dreams. And there's my agenda that's not being met. And Jesus turns to you and says, I'm true. I am real. You can depend upon me. When you follow me, you're going to find life and life in abundance because he gave his life for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we are reminded here in this testimony This witness of Mary, how her life was changed in a moment from despair and disappointment to joy, to faith, to peace, to confidence, to devotion. We pray for ourselves. We pray that you would work the same miracle, if you will, in our own lives. That you would turn us away from our disappointments, our frustrations, our fears, our anxiety, And you would turn us to the reality of you, that you really are true, you really are alive, you really have emptied the tomb of yourself, and you did it for us. We need that message, we need that truth, we need that to sink deep into our bones and into our blood and into our thoughts and into our understanding of the life that you have called us to live in. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.